listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the early evening of Thursday, the 3rd of June in Seoul, and the same time in Tokyo, Japan, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guest, Professor Sandra Fahey, to talk about her two books on North Korea, her current academic pursuits, and the overlap and difference between human rights work and humanitarian work. Before we do that, I'd like to remind all of you, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this podcast episode with everyone you know, and even three people who you don't. Second, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please email us at podcast at nknews.org. Now, my guest today, Dr. Sandra Fahey, is finishing a stint as Associate Professor of Social and Cultural Anthropology at Sophia University in Tokyo, Japan. She'll soon return to her home country of Canada. Dr. Fahey received her PhD from the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, in London. Her research areas span everything from socio-cultural anthropology to medical anthropology of food, health, migration, refugees, war, militarism, violence, linguistic anthropology of trauma, memory, governmentality, censorship, testimony, media, state, and human rights theory and practice. I might have missed one or two, but thanks for joining us on the show today, Dr. Faye. Pleasure to be here with you, Jocko. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have to, We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years. I'm glad it's finally happened right before yes. you leave East Asia to go back to North America. We actually met it back in 2004, long, long time ago in mm -hmm. Seoul, we were brought together by the issue and our common interest in North Korean refugees when you were still a PhD student, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think I was just starting my PhD at that time or had just started. Ah. And um, yeah, fond memories of those times. And yeah, I mean, it's so cool that we still know each other. We're still involved with this. And yeah, it's always, you know, tends to be people who get interested in this field, stay interested in it and are yeah. devoted to the topic. So it's very good. It is a niche market, and I think if you stick around long enough, there's a good chance that everybody knows everybody. Yes, that's true. <laughs> now, what got you fascinated in North Korea in general and North Korean human rights in particular? Um, it's a great question, Jocko. I just finished speaking about this very thing at uh, Monash University in Australia. Ah, one of my alma maters. Yes, yes. So, you know, I had a great opportunity to speak about that. And I decided to talk about kind of what goes on behind the scene for academics, like what's really mm -hmm. driving us. And, and for me, the basic way, like I first went to Korea, the first time ever was in 2001. And I stayed in mm. Korea for three years. I was working at Seoul National University. But the reason I went to Korea in the first place is because I was going to learn Korean language and I wanted to work directly with North Koreans and collect their oral history of the famine. What was your experience like of surviving famine? Mm. And the reason I had that question, that that was what I wanted to study and that I chose Korea, is because I had an interest in famine, famine studies from mm. my uh, master's degree and from my undergraduate degree and just supplementary reading that I've always been doing probably since, well, since I was a teenager, I suppose, like yeah. in uh, survivor testimonies and why there weren't survivor testimonies from famine as we see kind of somewhat organic emergence of survivor testimonies from other types of collective social suffering, political violence, like genocide or the Holocaust, you know? So 
I had started with my master's degree looking at the Irish famine of 1847. Mm. And, um, you know, that was a history written by the British. And uh, the British had effectively brought the famine to Ireland, allowed the famine to happen. And, you know, it fundamentally changed the society forever. And yet there weren't any materials written by people who survived it. Now, there's lots of structural Mm. reasons why that's the case. I soon found out. I mean, I was in my opinion, a naive 24, 25 year old, well, 22, 23 year old when I was doing that research for my master's degree, and then wanted to pursue it further for my PhD degree by working with people who'd survived famine and uh, collecting their oral histories, asking them, you know, because it is a form of political violence. And there's no need for a famine to be happening anywhere in the world, basically since the 1970s, because we have early warning systems, we have a tremendous in- infrastructure around the world. Like I'm able to eat avocados and grapefruit all year round yeah. in Japan, should I wish to. It, you know, it costs a fortune, but I can do it. And in Canada, where I grew up, and uh, that should be impossible, right? <laughs> there should be a famine yeah. every winter, and, but there's not. So why isn't there? And it's because of infrastructure. It's because of a lot of other things. The Canadian government decides to make certain decisions uh, with regards to allocation of food, et cetera. And so- mm. If those things aren't happening in certain countries, it's because the government and other uh, governing, if it's a colonized state, for instance. That's a, a hard truth for, for people to uh, to come to terms with. I know uh, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. I was growing up in the uh, in the mid-1980s, there was this um, famine in Ethiopia or in Eritrea. Exactly. And Jacko, I think we might be the same age because I, uh, I well, was let, coming at age. Let's not give the game away. Yes, let's not. Let's not. Let's not. My gosh. Go ahead, with, go ahead with your thought and we'll loop, we'll loop back around. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought, oh, there's, there's a famine in Ethiopia. That's terrible. You know, um, the world should help. And it wasn't until some years later that I learned that actually that there was strategic and systemic reasons why this famine existed and, and mm-hmm. why it helped the government of Addis Ababa mm-hmm. you know, to have that and, and, and why aid was not getting through. All these much more complex reasons. You know, as a as youngster, you don't realize these things. And it was mm-hmm. a very painful truth to to realize that yeah as you say there's no uh, need for famine anymore you know we have enough food in the world but there are reasons why famines occur and that's really uh, hard to to grapple with and so I had initially just to finish the thought there to answer your question Mm. I had initially been considering working on Ethiopia Ah. and uh, there wasn't an opportunity for me to really go and work there I mean I was not you know I needed to be able to make money and to pay for my language learning and I knew what was going on in North Korea and the famine yeah. in North Korea was far newer, mm. you know, um, more fresh in the memory. And so, you know, everyone thought it was a terrible idea and I'd never be able to learn Korean. And, you know, people were like, oh, you know, fool's errand and all the rest, which only made me more, <laughs> it only galvanized <laughs> me further because I'm so obstinate. But anyway, yeah. and um, yeah, and I went and I was learning language. And then, then that, of course, that weird stuff about South Koreans asking, you know, oh, why are you learning our language? And then that awkward, mm. well, I'm learning it because I want to study North Korea. And then they'd be like, oh, right. God, you know, we're so embarrassed and we should be working on North Korea. And here you are a foreigner and you're working on North Korea and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so that's how I got interested. Mm. And then, as you know, it's like uh, the water that's pulled down the drain, the drain being North mm. Korea and you being the water, you just keep getting sucked down. I mean, yeah. velocity. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's how the story began. Now, do you see yourself as purely an academic or are you also a bit of an activist? Well, I mean, I think I've always been a bit of a vigilante Mm -hmm. in my own mind. And, you know, I have a background of activism when I was in Canada. I did a lot of union organizing. I got fired from Ah. 
basically a sweatshop I was working in because I tried to unionize the workers um, hired by a union office. Um, So I've always been an activist as well as as a scholar. And I couldn't be honest with you, Jacko. I mean, I couldn't sleep at night (laughs) if I just did studies of North Korea and didn't also, I mean, to me, it just, it's like one leg walks the other, you know? Right. You know, so I just... And especially the more and more I study and, and work on this subject and the more I learn, because, it, you know, with writing books, I mean, I don't know about other academics, I can only speak for myself, but I write in the process of write, obviously researching and writing, I learn about what I'm doing in the process. Mm. It's one of the only ways I can remember what I'm doing, even then I often quite forget what I've written about, but yeah, yeah so I think the activism is very important because I don't know if this happened for you, Jocko, when you were working with North Korean refugees in South Korea, but it's like you learn about these individuals who are who have suffered horrible lives in North Korea and they're with you in South Korea or in Japan, in the case I've interviewed both. And um, you know, when you're in South Korea and you have all these South Koreans who are living wonderful lives or mm-hmm. you know, difficult lives, but they're trudging along and they're living in freedom, obviously, relative freedom, but far better than what's in North Korea. And it just feels so heartbreaking sometimes to realize. They kind of missed opportunity that that's there that could so much be there for North Koreans, but isn't. Did you ever have that kind of feeling? Yeah, uh, you know, kind of a so close but yet so far feeling that you know um, certainly when 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 the images of the uh, of the famine were coming out in the uh, in the late nineties and and also the, the early two thousands, it was uh, it was so jarring because it, it juxtaposed mm-hmm. so uh, wildly with you know the lived experience of being in South Korea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, I want to talk uh, briefly about your two published books and then uh, move on to what you're working on now. And then I've got some overarching questions about all of it, so I'm hoping to tie it all together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your first book is called Marching Through Suffering and it published by Columbia University Press. It came out first off in uh, 2015 as a hardback and then a paperback version in 2018. And in this book, you examine how North Korean famine survivors understood the food crisis and the, the political violence that came together with it. So this is where you're making that record of the famine, the oral history that you were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So I had done the field work in Seoul and in Tokyo from so with two, 2000, um, kind of six and seven, I think I had gone back to Korea, mm-hmm. maybe the end of 2005. The years are a bit sketchy in my mind, but around then I had recorded um, with the consent, of course, of many informants, um, mm. oral history, their own experience of the famine. And these were individuals who I used a kind of snowballing technique of individuals that I had been working with in the the North Korean defector NGO community, human rights activist community. I didn't interview individuals who were particularly politically active. I mm-hmm. interviewed kind of their family members and used them to kind of snowball and get other individuals. I tried to get people from many different parts of the country, of uh, all the different provinces in North Korea. So was there a reason why you chose not to focus so much on the people who are politically active? Well, I was a little worried that if I worked with individuals who were very politically outspoken in North, uh, in South Korea from the North, mm-hmm. that um, they might use the opportunity in talking about the famine to push a particular agenda mm. or to... I don't know what I really was trying to grasp. Well, I mean, there were fundamental questions that I myself had, you know, which soon, like, 
through listening to so many of the oral histories, I was quite disabused of these questions that I had. But, you know, kind of, I guess basic, obvious questions like, look, weren't you enraged? Didn't you see that the government was responsible for this? Who did you see as responsible for it? Didn't you reach mm. a level of frustration? And of course, I wasn't asking these questions in this kind of tone, you know, like right. trained as an anthropologist, you know, you approach things in a very subtle way. When I began a lot of the, well, every single interview, every single person knew that I was recording their experience of the famine. And every single individual I had assumed would be shy and embarrassed and reluctant to talk about this. But no, every single person was very eager to tell me that I want to tell you about this experience. So I'd, I had a lot of assumptions myself, you know, as you do when you're studying things and they all, oh, sure. well, but I didn't sit down and say, okay, right. So tell me about the, all the bodies you saw stacked up in the train station and whatever. Like, of course I never start like that. Was, was there a, a common thing or a couple of common things that they all wanted you to know first and foremost? That's a great question. I think the core thing, I guess, in this way, we could imagine that they wanted me, because I said at the end of all the interviews, like, is there a message that you'd like to send out, you know, mm. and they said just to, you know, help North Korean people, we need all the help we can get, like, this is so unfair. And we, you know, we're completely lacking in information. And, but a curious thing kind of happens. And I'm going to try to articulate this succinctly, which is that, you know, you know, they are experts of their own lived experience of famine, right? Which is one person in one community, perhaps, you know, with a cluster of families or whatever. And the type of structural violence that you see or that is famine, and there's other types of structural violence like this, it's very difficult to trace back who is culpable, who is mm -hmm. responsible. And this is why it's very easy for a government such as North Korea's or in the case of China or the Soviet Union you know, to say that the reason this is happening is because of drought. Oh, and now it's because of flooding. Mm. Oh, and now it's because of sanctions. And now it's because of the combination of these things. Because when you're on the ground, it very much seems to be the problem, very much mm. seems to be the absence of food. And it is, in fact, the absence of food. But the reason that there's a famine is because individuals cannot alter their access to food. Now that's very much within academic famine theory literature, right? Uh, Amatira Sen wrote about this. Kim Jong-il didn't starve. In fact, he ate very well. And, mm. you know, Kim Jong-un as well, even though he was abroad for part of it. And, you know, so, so it's who gets access to food, who's able to alter their access or entitlement is another term that's used. So sometimes men mm. and women are entitled to different amounts, of course. And so for people, so I'm just kind of looping back around here. What was really interesting is that as an anthropologist, I had to combine that on the ground insight, that very experiential, subjective understanding of famine. And I had to combine it with what I know from reading famine theory, which is that it's not an absence of food, right? It's the fact yeah. that the government has made decisions about who is able to alter their access to food. In this case, mm. people wanted to then work in the market, right, to alter their access to food. But there'd be crackdowns on that, or people wanted to cross the border in order to alter their access to food, or move around North Korea in order to alter their access to food, right? Yeah. And to some extent, North Korean government has permitted that, but they've permitted it with a lot of crackdowns because they know, North Korean government knows, look, and I could be proved wrong, but I, I think I'm not, but happy to get into a debate over it. But they seem to know 
that if the people of North Korea were able to access or alter their access to food and indeed information and timely information that they could learn more and more about the outside world, learn more and more about the world inside North Korea, for which they are also very limited in terms of what they understand and how they understand and interpret it, and that they might seek to demand a different way of life, a different type of governance. And that's the concern for North Korea. They have to weigh that delicate balance always, right? Yeah. So I guess that was the message that, that people repeated over and over was, look, like, we you know, we don't want to be living in this kind of condition, please help us. Mm. But then, of course, you come into the irony of, well, well how do people understand what that help would mean? And, and yeah. like that. I mean, I just want to say one more thing, Jocko, which is, mm. you know, the thing that struck me, and I mean, I guess we have to bear in mind, like I was 25 years old, or 28 years old at the time when I started collecting these interviews. And I had really assumed, you know, I guess two things that you know, oppressed people all over the world bear a certain resemblance to each other. So for instance, mm. like Black Americans in the U.S. fighting resistance, you know, bear, you know, it's the kind of classic thing that even a kind of message that North Korea sends out, right? That, you know, the collaborations they had with the Black Panther Party, I think Benjamin Young writes about this. Mm. Uh, well, yeah. No, he writes about this. So you know, but the assumption that all oppressed people bear resemblance to each other, in fact, they don't. And, and why not? I mean, yes, you can have an alliance, but you don't always bear resemblance to each other because you don't necessarily know. The oppressed doesn't know necessarily what is causing her oppression, mm. right? So in the case of North Koreans, they were told it's the drought, it's the floods, it's sanctions. And then they were also told on top of that, it's because of the Americans and the Japanese and the South Koreans that we're having these difficulties. So if your object of oppression manifests in those ways, then how you as oppressed understand your oppression and, and what needs to be done is, is quite different. So, I mean, there are some, I guess, just to kind of finish the thought here, who are oppressed, who will fully be aware and cognizant of what is causing that feature. Um, but there are other individuals who, who won't. I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of... So it was interesting to me when I asked North Koreans, you know, oh, well, you know, were you not angry at the government? Were you not enraged that, like, you, your infant son was dying and, you know, the government wasn't... No, I was, I was yeah. annoyed at the Americans. I was annoyed at the South Koreans. I was annoyed at the Japanese. I was... You know, so this, because of the type of political violence it was, it was very hard for people to identify the culprit. So it links back to, or it seems to me that it, it links back to access to information, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because, Jocko, this is the thing. You know, human rights don't happen, uh, human rights violations don't happen on a singular level. Mm. So famine studies research shows that you're not going to have a famine happening in a country where you have free media. Emma Tirasen, again, proved that point. So Ireland at the time, 1847, that famine was occupied by the British. But the Irish didn't have their own media. North Korea yep. doesn't have free media. End right. of story. They absolutely do not. Um, same with China during the Great Leap Famine. Same with the, the whole Dormer famine. The famine in Bangladesh. The famine that's happening right now in Yemen. So it's the absence of certain rights that will lead to exacerbation of other human rights violations. So, you know, this is why, just to add this point, if I was writing the sentence, I would have a footnote that says, you know, the gag law produced by the South Korean government towards sending information into North Korea effectively sustains many other human rights violations in North Korea. Mm. 
I mean, many people associate free media, whether we call it the fourth estate, fifth estate, I mean, whatever, the, the estate outside of the government that is a yeah. check on government. I mean, that doesn't exist in North Korea. And that is the thing which is, you know, kind of like a linchpin. If you have free media, if you have the ability to raise your voice and speak and make a complaint about certain laws that are passed, why they're being passed, and who's being affected by them, mm. then you can have a kind of Congress, public Congress discussing this thing. But if you don't have that, then you, you can't complain, you can't discuss things. And this is something that happened, just going back to the first book, which was fascinating to me to see. I knew that language would play a very important role because I had read so much uh, Holocaust survivor literature and how important language was in terms of communicating inside the camps, in terms of communicating in the ghettos, in terms of the role of humor in mm -hmm. the human spirit. And so it didn't seem odd to me, for instance, when I was chatting with North Koreans to say, you know, well, look, I, tell me about some jokes that were common uh, yes. during the famine. You know what I mean? That people would say to each other. And you might recall, I wrote about that in the book and the women would call men, not them daytime light bulbs. You have no use for a light bulb during the day. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you put the light bulb to work at night and um, they would just call the men mung mungy, like just dogs barking. But that is all linked right. to patterns that exist in famine. You see that men, sadly, um, lose their reputable jobs in mm. community and women end up having to pick up the slack whether they want to or don't want to but it ends up happening that's the pattern yeah and so women end up working in the market in north korea and all kinds of things like that and oh i would say well how would you how would you communicate with someone you're not allowed to talk about the black market was how would you communicate with someone that you're going down there like i was going to do jocko okay meet me later at the black market and we'll buy some penicillin or whatever it is and they called it the um Ah, uh, the, the labor's, labor's department store. Yeah, yeah, the worker's department store. Mm. As a joke, because I mean, to yeah. call the black market a bequajom, right? Right. Because, you know, bequajom, I don't know about you, but bequajom in my mind always has this kind of really fancy, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Brightly lit, lots of floors. Yeah, yeah, not a dirt road. And anyway, mm. so to me, this was fascinating because language, like, a lot of impressions I had of, of North Koreans, they're incredibly imaginative, hardworking. I mean, perhaps I'm speaking too highly of them, but you know, I was, I have to admit, I was very impressed with how imaginative and creative they were with the profoundly limited resource of free mm. speech, right? So the kind of jokes they said and different things. And I, I mean, I know I barely scratched the surface. There's all kinds of other stuff, you know, that, yeah. that could be there. So. Now, I, I want to go on to your second book because there's still so many other things I've got to ask you about as well. Uh, your yeah. second book is called Dying for Rights, Putting North Korea's Rights Abuses on the Record, also published by Columbia University Press. And that one came out in 2019. Is it uh, in a way an extension of your first book or is it a completely different thing? I suppose you could say, well, like they're very different books in the writing. Yeah. The first book is written more as a chronology. You know, what was the first impression people like? So, just to go back, like one of the first questions I asked people was, okay, tell me about your hometown. What was the main industry? You know, what was it like? How, was it beautiful? Was it ugly? Whatever, right? And then mm -hmm. what was the first sign that something was unusual, right? So it was more narrative style, mm -hmm. even though, I mean, there's kind of a composite, like the oral testimonies are kind of cut and spliced up. So there's no, it's not like Barbara Demick's book, which ah. follows a few narratives. So it's not like that. The second book, you know, I was kind of, I was working on a different book at the time, 
that was about military defectors, which mm. I'm going to turn to at some point again, um, collecting oral histories from individuals in North Korea who defected from their military service, effectively deserted North Korea. But yeah. And so I was working on that. And then Columbia, I guess, and Victor Char, David Kong said, you know, hey, would you like to, but basically my editor said, oh, you know, people have been talking, would you like to write a book about the whole human rights problem in North Korea? Because the Commission mm. of Inquiry Yes. 2014 report had come out, you know, that's the United Nations Commission of Inquiry, which, you know, was produced from, I'll just quickly, if I can say that that report was really galvanized by decades of work by NGOs in South Korea and internationally, who were saying to the UN, look, there's crimes against humanity happening in North Korea, uh, forced abortion, public execution, torture, you know, all of this. So can you please do a, an investigation and then they put together three commissioners and and then carried it out over a year and then published the findings in 2014. And the findings were based on interviews with 200 experts, uh, former North Koreans, et cetera, et cetera. The North Korea itself was invited to participate and ignored the request. And mm. so that was a huge thing because also North Korea began this huge talk back campaign in the 2014 and onward. So I think it was 2015, my book, first book came out and I think in the time that it was being processed, the editor at Columbia said, look, would you like, and I thought very carefully because, I mean, you know, what you focus on grows. I mean, you have to be very careful, right? Like, I didn't want to paint North Korea with one brush and be like, oh, it's a totally horrible place because I knew from my first book that, yeah. you know, it's far more nuanced than that. But the funny thing is, I mean, after doing the research for the second book, I mean, my mm. God, I would never tell anyone to go there now. Like, I'm totally... Mm. I think I was a little bit of a soft hand in my earlier <laughs> first uh -huh. days. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, what you focus on grows, but then when you focus and study something, you also really, you really get to know it. And yeah. um, so, so it's very different from the first book. I didn't do any interviews myself. I was kind of tapped out, to be honest, on the interviews. Mm. The interviews for the first book were, I'm going to talk about that in the Monash interview a bit. It was quite taxing for me personally. I mm. got very sick. My hair fell out. I lost a lot of weight. I Goodness. started to have nightmares about being in North Korea. I mean, this is just, I'm just an ordinary Canadian. Like this mm. is, do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to say this stuff to all feel bad for me. What I'm saying is that the trauma was so significant that these individuals yeah. experienced that hearing the stories over and over, for me anyway, it was extremely difficult. And I did over 30, 30 interviews with North Koreans. And you know, it was just, a, it was extremely emotionally painful mm. for me. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do any more interviews. So what I did instead was I listened to all the audio material that the Commission of Inquiry used, because it's all publicly ah. available. And so I went through that myself, and it's all in Korean, and some of it's, well, I guess, yeah, the Korean parts are also translated. And anyway, look, let me just tell you what that book's about. I'll stop rambling on. But the aim of the book is mm -hmm. to be like the, the go-to source on the North Korean human rights situation, you know, so that you could hand it to a student or a diplomat if they needed to know, and they'd come away from it knowing the full extent, not only of the human rights violations that are happening, which one part of the book looks at, but also how North Korea understands human rights, how it understands human rights violations, how it speaks about that to the international community. So, you know, the first part of the book looks at, or I guess the scope of the book, you know, it looks at the crimes that are committed and the crimes as they are identified under crimes against humanity. 
which uh, is a term that means the crimes are deliberate, that they're part of a systematic campaign designed by the government, and that they are that causing human uh, suffering and death on a large scale. So types of crimes against humanity would be rape, again, that it's deliberate, systematic, and part of a, a systematic campaign and, and uh, causing human suffering and death on a wide scale, torture, imprisonment, disappearance, enslavement, you know, so that those types of things. So though I go through all of those uh, from the earliest history, history uh, to the present in North Korea, and then I also go through the findings, um, how North Korea responded. Sorry, that's my little foster kitty there. Yes, I can hear it in the background. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So then I go through the uh, through the denials. So I look at how North Korea has responded. The fact that they just ignored the request to participate in the commission of inquiry. The commissioner said to North Korea, "If this is not true, we will make it known that this is not true." Mm -hmm. We will make it well known. But the commissioners asked for access to the prison camps to North Korea freely. And of course, those requests, which I think went out twice, were completely ignored, mm. which is interesting that they were ignored because North Korea itself arranged for many diplomats, state representatives at all kinds of speaking campaigns like sidebar events at the United Nations in London, um, Taeyong Ho, who hadn't defected yet, spoke at an event in London with the International Socialist Group, I think, talking about how fabulous the healthcare system was in North Korea. Yeah. Um, this kind of thing, you know, denying the human rights violations. So that they were ever there or ever happening. So I guess the argument that I make in the book presented from the evidence is that human rights violations are being committed by the state and that they've been in place since the founding of the country. That the violations happening in North Korea are intrinsic to the state. In fact, I struggle to have a vision of North Korea that would be a North Korea without human rights violations. I just don't see mm. a way that, that government could exist without the human rights violations that it commits. And uh, the final thing, the argument that I make, is that the response um, that they made, that the government made in 2014, which was extensive, and I can go into it in detail if you'd like, but um, that it was almost entirely superficial and about saving face. So that's the second book. Now, I want to go on to your uh, your current project now, because you're doing mm. something very interesting on on videos and state use of digital media. And that's uh, certainly a, a hot topic lately. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, um, Jaco, as I was working on the second book, and I suppose all of, I mean, maybe it's like this for other academics or writers, that they're, the things you create are kind of siblings to each other. Yeah. So... You know, as I was working on the second book, you know, I was doing a ton of analysis of North Korea's own videos and documentaries because they were producing a lot of documentaries that slander North Korean defectors who basically say, oh, this person's, you know, human scum and, you know, descendant of, you know, whatever swear word and, you know, insulting the individual basically. So, you know, I was really fascinated with those videos and I kind of saw that I, I guess I saw the videos as kind of evidence left behind at a crime scene mm. that if you look at the videos closely in the case of North Korea this is very low-hanging fruit right you look at any video that's produced by North Korea particularly if you go to the website Udiminjokiri they have a special section in the video section that's about um, I think it's called Jinshirugwa I can't remember something like truth and lies or something like this. It's about human rights. Uh -huh. And 
basically, you know, I put together this argument that you can see, you know, you can see the lies in the videos, nevertheless, even though the, the state is using them to defend itself. But if you look closely through the jump cuts, through how they're manipulating the audio, through how yes. they're manipulating the visual aspect of it, that um, you can see it's woven together, that in fact, I call it the state as ventriloquist. You know, the state is throwing ah. its voice into the subject, telling the subject what to say. Mm. And, you know, and I was working about, and I also said like this, North Korea is basically trying to create an heirs at civil society because North Korea doesn't have a civil society. There's nothing that we can say about North Korea that has a civil society. The plane just doesn't exist, right? right. North Korea has something that we in the human rights field call gongos, government organized, non-governmental organizations. Right? Ah. Yeah, gongos right. a lot show up at the UN quite a bit. And gongos, North Korea isn't, you know, original creator of them, but North Korea. They're quite good at it. Yeah, and North Korea tried to, and I call it airs at civil society. So you saw, you know, North Korea tried to hold a demo against the human rights report in October, I think it was 2014. You know, the, just even the way, if you look at the video, you can see it's all staged. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, protests don't look like that. That mm. looks like an authoritarian <laughs> dictatorship. That does not look like, now maybe they'll get more savvy after they read my book. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, then we'll just have to examine that as well. But it's kind of like, I think Hannah Arendt write, wrote about this, that, you know, the lie kind of tears a hole in the fabric. It's always going to be there. You know, yeah. you can always trace it back and find it. And so I feel that the videos do that. And so as I was writing the book, to answer your question, I uh, it was 2018 and I was coming to the end of writing the North Korean book and um, Jamal Khashoggi mm. was walking into the uh, Saudi Arabian embassy and core consulate, excuse me, in Istanbul, and he never came out and his fiance was waiting for him. And then I think it was the Saudis pointed to CCTV camera, which was pulled from the Istanbul city CCTV system, mm -hmm. which showed a body double. They said it's Khashoggi, but it was a body double. Mm. And I thought, oh, wow, that is so cheeky. Yeah. And then, of course, it was revealed that Khashoggi had been, I guess, strangled or we're not exactly sure, killed, mm. cut up, and that his body, his clothing was uh, put onto the body double, minus his shoes, which I think were too small. And uh, the man didn't want to shave his head. Oh, I, you know, could I just interrupt that? That is... Uh, I, I, sometimes it's the little things that, that strike me as the most interesting that you're you're a man working for the Saudi government and you're told that your job is to wear the clothes of a man we've just killed because you know we presume yeah. that he was probably killed with his clothes on so here's uh, the clothes that a man died in you're going to wear those clothes and you're okay all right I'm, I'm cool with that and you have to shave your hair so you have a bald spot like well no hold on a moment I'm going to balk at that <laughs> I will gladly wear the clothes of a dead man that you've just killed but I will not shave my head I find that fascinating <laughs> Well, look, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily how it all played out. I don't know the details of this body double. I would love to know the details. He might not have known. He might just have been told, you look most like this person who we're trying to hide. Can you just put these clothes on, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, a friend of mine, Sung Yoon Lee, who's a great scholar of Korea as well, he, you know, he said to me, because he came to a talk I was doing about this book and Jaco, I think you were there as well, because you came and listened when I was doing a little impromptu discussion of this book. Yes. And, you know, he, 
Ian suggested to me something which I hadn't really thought of, but that states are kind of doing this almost as a kind of chutzpah, like almost to say, yeah, yeah, this is us. And we're hmm. going to be a little, we're going to give you a couple hints and we don't really care. Like it's almost like a flagrant um, playing with like a kind of almost cat and mouse. Mm. You know, a similar thing happened, you know, as you, you know, you've heard me speak about this book before. And I'm, I'm thinking about calling it States, Lies and Video. States, Lies and Video tape. Okay. Yeah. So when it covers a century of states doing this, because yeah. when I saw the case of Saudi doing it, and there are some other questions surrounding Saudi about a young princess who, you know, there's video, is she alive, is she not? Oh, the one who went to Thailand? Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. requests for her, is she, you know, I, I don't know the details of it, so I, I'm going to stop talking about it there. Mm. You're talking about stuff I do know, but, you know, so the Russians basically sending two guys off into Salisbury. So yeah, they just wanted to see the cathedral, didn't they? Correct. They went to see the cathedral, not to commit an assassination. Mm. And I think, you know, they put their review on TripAdvisor and it was quote unquote an eventful trip. And one of them gave four stars to the cathedral. Right. And then, you know, the CCTV footage caught them going around the city. And of course they did poison a former KGB officer, but didn't kill him. And Anyway, so the, the book goes through many different cases. There's cases of states using CCTV, which mm. is, you know, an awareness that CCTV is capturing them. So it's called suveille, like knowing that you're being surveilled from below. And so you act accordingly and killing of Kim Jong-nam mm. in Kuala Lumpur airport. This is a kind of interesting case because, you know, there is video footage of this. Again, it's CCTV. There were two women, I think one was Vietnamese, the other one... Indonesian. Indonesian, thank you. And one of them was wearing a t-shirt that said LOL, L-O-L. Yeah. And later she said, oh, we thought we were part of a re reality TV prank. And, yeah. and this is interesting to me because I feel like they're trying to use here a Western kind of motif. Mm -hmm. You know, the West is the land of crazy television, you right. know crazy reality tv and this is reality tv par excellence right i mean right. you just fascinated someone with nerve agent right in the middle of an international airport anyway so those are some cases i mean i go back i mean the, the earliest case i have is from 1927 um soviet union and uh, i have cases from nazi occupied europe um Tresen, uh, concentration camp where nazis forced jews to not only act in but to direct and film documentary mm. about how one camp life how great camp life was which we can really resonate with that today with the type of documentaries that china is putting out about the great camp life in yeah. xinjiang and i think they even have a movie out drawing a blank on the name of it but uh you know so you know for instance pompeii uh, pompeo will critique the conditions of human rights in Xinjiang and then the next thing you know is kind of call and response right you'll have suddenly mm. a YouTuber who's based in Xinjiang mysteriously yeah. who's you know uploading to YouTube from Xinjiang Xinjiang again mysteriously talking about how fabulous things are in Xinjiang and right. um, how the West doesn't know and sometimes even a Western individual doing this which is you know a prize thing I mean North Korea was doing it as well you know if they could have Westerners saying on video that North Korea has no human rights problems, et cetera, et cetera. This is a real boon for them. Mm. And there's a case of, I have another case from Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces altering some video, very recent, I think it's from 2017, 2018 maybe, 
which um, shows them doing some roof knocking. There were two young teenage boys who were killed at the time and they edited the video to make it look like they were never there. Mm. And it was proven otherwise by a group called Forensic Architecture, which produces excellent work. Um, similar stuff being done by the Russians in Syria with the white helmets. Right. There's all kinds of, I mean, it really blends a lot with misinformation. But for me, the key hook that I'm looking at with this book is the way that states who are primarily tasked with protecting our rights, mm. you know, since the development of the UDHR in 48, are our primary abusers and they've always been our primary abusers but now or basically since the advent of video they have been using video to attempt to exonerate themselves yeah. so i'm not i'm not looking at video of them committing horrendous human rights violations for instance like i don't look at non-state actors like isis and all the stuff they do because that would oh. just become too huge a book and that's not what i'm interested in. i'm more interested in where they are kind of playing this fine line of creating, you know, fake news about, you know, creating plausible doubt yeah. about their role in the human rights violation. Yeah, and we, we've seen some some very good examples of that. Well, coming out of the uh, the camps in in Xinjiang, of course, of uh, you know, the Uyghur people, um, they're shown to be learning Chinese in one scene and then showing off an ethnic Uyghur folk dance in another scene and then exactly. talk about how they uh, all they just want job skills so they can get a good job and you know and then yeah. last week of course in Belarusia we had the exactly. uh, journalist there uh, Roman I've forgotten his last name but he's talking on film there about how you know they're, they're treating me well and I'm I'm you know I'm being given a pro appropriate treatment and etc uh, etc et you know I mean, that, that's so these forced confessions are something I also look at. Um, Iran produces a lot of them. North Korea doesn't. I mean, North Korea has done a few that are a little bit odd and questionable, you know, with the mm. returnee, the, the yeah, alleged return defectors. Yeah. Um, Vietnam does a lot of this. Um, it would be interesting to see if Myanmar will bother to do anything like this in the days ahead. Mm. But, you know, the United States, so we just say nobody's nobody's exonerated from my study. I will look at whoever produces this type of video. By the way, if anyone's yep. listening to this podcast and you know of a video that I should be writing about, please, by all means, email me smfahi at gmail.com mm. <laughs> because I am crowdsourcing this material. But, you know, the United States had their crisis actor Nayera who gave false testimony to U.S. Congress about Kuwaiti babies. Oh, in 1990, uh, yeah. Was it 92? Um, Iraqi soldiers taking Kuwaiti babies out of incubators, leaving them on the floor to die, taking the incubators, all this stuff. You know, total bollocks never happened. Right. Oh, sorry. Excuse my language. <laughs> um, excuse my very academic language. <laughs> uh, anyway. You know, it was later revealed by a Canadian news investigation team mm. that that wasn't true at all. You know, and then in fact, Kuwait, you know, who was it? Yeah, Kuwait had paid a PR company to study, you know, what impacts people the most. And of course, it's little babies yep. being mistreated. I mean, who wants to see a little baby mistreated? And, you know, so if you can tell some story and maybe you can have a young girl who's crying telling the story, you know, meanwhile, she was the child of a Kuwaiti ambassador and all this stuff. I mean, mm. You know, so that was a video that was used to galvanize, you know, the invasion of Iraq. So, yeah, so there's all kinds of cases that I look at. And uh, I guess what I'm just trying to say is the, the final loop that I'm trying to make, because within the human rights community, we've really thought that having video is like a panacea, right? Mm. If you have a video we saw yep. poor Mr. George Floyd being murdered on video. And certainly if the young teenager hadn't, 13-year-old yeah. young girl who you know, video that I, chances of the 
Mr. Chauvin, the white supremacist officer who killed him, being charged with murder, it's unlikely that that would have happened, right? So there is a link sometimes, but not always, because we saw, you know, the beating of Rodney King, which was the first time really that a citizen really recorded something on video like that. It galvanized a movement, but it didn't, you know, it didn't lead to the incarceration of those police officers. So, yeah, so I'm just trying to loop around and say, okay, well, human rights activists, this is great for us, mm. but let's hold our horses here because the states are, have been doing this all along, Yeah. you know, and for a lot of the footage, like the, particularly the Nazi stuff about uh, Theresienstadt uh, camp, like I can't even get access to those videos because they're considered part of the forbidden film uh, kind of genre mm. and uh, that's still used by, to this day, by Holocaust denialists, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so that's, yep. so that's the type of thing that I'm, that I'm working on. And then I hope, you know, to also be writing on the North Korean military defectors and their perception of their willingness, their kind of esprit de corps really is what I'm looking at there. Their willingness to fight their perception of um, South Korean soldiers and that kind of thing. So now I'm coming now to the last section, which is general overarching questions. We've only got 15 minutes left, so I'm going to have to make it a bit of a okay, rapid, rapid fire round. It's going to be hard for you yeah, as an ahead. academic. Um, yeah. So how do you see uh, the intersection, overlap and distinction between humanitarian and human rights issues? Well, how I see it, I mean, I guess just my own, when, when, with this case, yeah, the case of North Korea. Yeah, is, when we talk about North Korea, is it possible to talk about these two fields, humanitarian and issues and human, human rights issues, talk about them in the same way or to study them with the same tools? I mean, maybe. I guess the answer for it would be maybe. The issue is this, right? It's mm. North Korea will not give you access if you view human rights in any kind of international norms way. You know, I tried to get access into North Korea to do research about disability issues for the second book and I was denied mm. access and I have an Irish passport so there's you know allegedly no reason of course the first book is the reason yeah and you know so you won't get access into North Korea North Korea's own human rights organization says anyone's welcome to come into North Korea and study human rights so long as you abide by our understanding of human rights and North Korea's view of human rights is that state sovereignty has is the ultimate right that has to be protected and after that then ordinary people's rights can be protected but you know what it says in one case and what's happening on the ground is quite different you know so if you want to for instance put together a tuberculosis program in north korea or multiple drug resistant tuberculosis program in north korea i think that's great if you want to develop a program that's about getting women access to birth control or um you know understanding sexually transmitted diseases mm. you know men and women things like that i think that's great i think that's really wonderful stuff is it at base human rights work? Well, yeah, because I mean, people people should have the right to health. They don't have it in North Korea because they have a very poorly health system. You know, this type of thing. North Koreans should be able to get access to um, COVID tests and treatment and vaccines, soap and water to wash their hands. So that that's basic human rights stuff. But if you use the language of rights around it you won't get access so that's i guess where the difference comes you know and then you know you enter in the question of i was speaking about this with somebody i can't remember i think it was radio free asia we were talking about this you know why does north korea always need aid mm. why does it why did north korea have a famine in the 1990s yeah yet it somehow mysteriously stopped at 38th parallel shocker 
Mm. Well, it's because of the government. Like I say in the book, what's possibly more nutritious in South Korea? It's politics. You know, it sounds a little smart ass, but it's true. Why does North Korea need aid? Because its government is not empowering the people to live free lives. North Korea could be just as wealthy, if not more wealthy than South Korea. It has tremendous resources, but the government, which is astronomically wealthy, is not allowing, I guess you could say, it's not taking its foot or its boot off the neck of the people. However, you can't start there because that's going to be a non-starter for many people, right? Because then you're immediately like, oh, you're calling for regime change. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I, North Korean's government, North Korea's government needs to change. Yeah, it does. Because there's no way, and from what I can see, I, I would encourage anyone to read my book. And if I'm wrong about something you pointed out, but I don't see a place where the North Korean government can operate with the level of, let's just say, even the level of human rights protections that South Korea has in the North and maintain the government that it has with mm. Kim Jong-un. It's just not going to happen. You know, so when North Korea talks about, oh, let's have peace on the peninsula, you know, then we'll give up our nukes, everything else, that's, that's not going to happen. North Korea is not going to give up its nukes. North Korea will. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. That, that is a whole other conversation. <laughs> yes, we, the, 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 there's a dichotomy that's often presented that people can either talk about human rights outside North Korea, which, uh, as you've been doing, which involves a lot of strong criticism of the North Korean government, uh, criticism that the North Korean state either ignores or calls ridiculous and unfounded, or on the other hand, people can do humanitarian work within North Korea, and that means working under the protection of and perhaps compromising with the North Korean state. Uh, and mm -hmm. that certainly involves much less criticism of the North Korean government, uh, not mm -hmm. absolute zero, but less. Is that an accurate dichotomy? And, and is that really the, the choice that organizations have to make in trying to improve the lives of North Korean citizens? I mean, to me, it seems to be, I'd be happy to prove to be shown otherwise, but to me, that does seem to be the case. If you want to get access, I mean, even those groups that are, you know, really bowing and acquiescing to the will of North Korea still have difficulty, are still kind of hogtied mm. in terms of the type of activities that they want to engage in in North Korea and still feel deeply frustrated, even though they are, you know, acquiescing so much to what the North Korean government wants them to do. So this is why, you know, many of us in the activist community think, okay, well, let's just, you know, throw balloons over, throw water bottles over, find other ways to, you know, advance human rights inside the country, because it's so difficult to, to work with the North Korean government. And that, that does bring to the very relevant and difficult question. You've studied and, and written about North Korean human rights for many years now. In your view, which approaches are the most effective to helping the quality of life of average North Korean citizens in the, in the shortest term possible? It's hard to say. I mean, in the shortest term possible, like I'd say probably what's impacted North Koreans' lives the most are the large number of North Korean defectors who send remittances mm. home and send information back home information that's sent back into North Korea. Yeah. So we have 30,000 now on average in, in South Korea. We have tons more in China that we can't count due to laws in China mm. and other parts of the world. So as you know, Jaco, in the time, I suppose, the two decades that you and I have been working on this, 
you know, it was unspeakable to think of a North Korean speaking in English, let alone on YouTube, what was YouTube, right? Yeah. And so we're seeing that. And I think that is some of the greatest stuff. But like, look, just sending, you know, balloons in with information do much. I, I look, I, we don't know exactly how much, or I don't know, I should say, I don't know exactly how much it does. Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Linton's group that goes in and tries to treat people with TB. The, uh, Eugene Bell Foundation. Oh, correct. Pardon me. Thank you. Eugene Bell Foundation. You know, do they do more? Maybe they do more. It's it's hard to know. Um, I kind of take the view that why not? Let's just try everything. Uh, uh, so yes. I don't critique those personally. I don't critique those who want to do humanitarian work. I think they should do it. I don't critique those who do activists, human rights work, you know, all those guys who were like storming embassies in China and Xinjiang, getting those guys over the walls in Xinjiang, pretending they were like cleaning staff for Canadian embassy or whatever. You know, I think that's great. Like for me, you know, I think we should do everything we can to protect our fellow humans, particularly those who mm. don't have the ability to help and protect themselves. You know, like I, I know, I believe if I were in that situation, I'd want someone on the outside doing everything they could for me, you know? Yeah. So, um, but it's, it's hard for people to have empathy for people that they don't know. So anyway, for me, I just think, you know, I don't critique any of it. Like those guys who work on the nuclear issue, great. Those, you know, we can't all do, you know, what I'm doing. I'm, I'm putting together my little bit. Right. You're putting right. together your bit. And whoever's listening here might be doing their own work with Link, uh, you know, Liberty in North Korea, or, you know, they're listening to some YouTubers like Yunmi Park and making some contributions in that way, or getting involved with some uh, Korean American, Korean Canadian, or Korean Korean, or yep. Korean and Japanese, you know, organizations and seeing like, what can I contribute to this community if I'm genuinely interested in, and wish to care? for these people who I don't know. Well, that brings me to the question of if a listener to our podcast today is looking for a group or an NGO to join or support with donations or activities, can you offer any general or specific criteria or signposts? Well, I do personally think that it's good if you can support organizations that work directly with North Korean defectors. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, Link, Liberty yep. North Korea, which I think, and I know Jaco, you know them well. Yeah. We had Sokil Park from Link here in South Korea on the show a couple of years ago, and I'm working on trying to get him uh, back on the show again soon. So if you're listening, Sokil, we look forward to having you back on. Yeah, amazing, amazing human being working with other amazing human beings. So Link, I would definitely encourage people to check them out. L-I-N-K, um, Liberty in North Korea, that's what stands for. There's another group called Asia Press, which is based here in Japan, and mm. have a special page called Vim Jin Gang, uh, R-I-M-J-I-N-G-A-N-G. Vim Jin Gang is like a river that runs from north to south on the peninsula. And Vim Jin Gang basically works with guerrilla journalists mm. who are in North Korea. It's a great website to check out. I'll just do a Google search for Asia Press Vim Jin Gang, and you will find all kinds of information. They're working with individuals who are in North Korea who plan to stay inside North Korea, and Ishimaru has trained uh, individuals to collect information and disseminate it back out. So this is very valuable. And then I guess the last thing I would say, like check out YouTubers like Yunmi Park, whose memoir I actually think is one of the best memoirs out there. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And she mentions a lot of other YouTubers, and she also has a YouTube channel in Korean. 
And she mentions a lot of other YouTubers who are from North Korea, some elite, some from very poor backgrounds like herself. And I think that's a good way to get started. If you want to just do something more local and um, you're based in an Anglo part of the world, I mean, check out your local Korean community and mm. see if have a chapter or something working on this issue. If you're in Canada, Han Voice is a very good organization based in Toronto that does some excellent work. How do you spell that? Is that H-A-N Voice? Correct. Okay. H-A-N-V-O-I-C-E. And I'm going to be back in Canada and I look forward to um, getting in touch with my Korean peeps back in Ottawa and Toronto and uh, doing some work on it there. So yeah. How do you uh, deal with suggestions that the testimony of North Korean refugees is, is sometimes less than reliable? I know that, uh, for example, uh, Yonmi Park, you just mentioned her and her, uh, her memoir. Uh, that's mm -hmm. come under some criticism in, in recent years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting one. I do address this in my book, actually. Like uh, for me too, like I have very bad memory. So I pff, definitely, like I was saying to you, I, did I start this in 2005? Was it 2006? I'm not mm. even sure. So I think the human memory is fallible. That's one thing I always say. Another thing I always say, you know, I grew up, I've got three sisters. If you ask each of us, we're going to have a different recollection of our childhood. <laughs> but there are going to be, but there are going to be some substantive similarities, right? Mm. So while you may have an outlier here or there, I think on balance, the testimonies are, what's the word? You know, the most salient features are the same. Yeah. You know, we don't have anyone that's describing a North Korea that's like South Korea. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, uh, if I just can take a minute and explain like Yunmi Park's story. So what I understand was the critique of her story was that she hadn't mentioned that she herself got involved with human trafficking when she was in China. And my assessment of that is that oftentimes when individuals are listening to a narrative, this was she gave her testimony, I believe, when she was in Ireland, she spoke and she just spoke about her own experience of trafficking and then left out mm. that she got involved with human trafficking in the process. But then so she omitted that and then she carried on to say and then she was managed to get to South Korea. Well, it's very difficult for human beings who draw a moral assessment of human rights, for instance, to square that you know, circle with, oh, she became a perpetrator, <laughs> mm. right? Yeah. I mean, people don't want to hear, oh, this North Korean defector, you know, sexually assaulted someone in South Korea. Well, surprise, surprise, they're human beings. <laughs> mm. You know, so there's that one thing. And, but also, I mean, a human life narrative is not simple. You know, it's very difficult if you're going to tell all the aspects of the story. So I think in the case of Yunmi Park, that might have felt a step too far for her at that point in her narrative to be talking about those details. In the case of, like, we take a different case of, oh, see, I'm forgetting his name. And this is Escape, uh, Escape from Camp. Uh, Shin Dong-hyuk. Shin Dong-hyuk, yes. How can I forget his name? Anyway, sorry. Sometimes when I put on the spot, I really forget the most fundamental things. Anyway, so Shin Dong-hyuk, again, the critique of his narrative, you know, did he misremember the number of the camp? And things mm -hmm. like that. The substantive truth is that North Korea does have forced work camps. It has re-education camps. It has what we would consider gulags or, or concentration camps, political prison camps, let's call them. One of their own officials even accidentally admitted they have political uh -huh. prison camps, you know? So, and then the other one walked it back. I mean, that's all written in my book too, you know? So, are there no human rights violations happening? No, 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 that's not true. North Korea is a cornucopia mm. of human rights violations available for all to, to see and enjoy should they wish to, to go there and become North Korean and really, you know, I mean, it's, 
is it the worst of the worst? I mean, I think it is up there. Xinjiang, mm. Syria, Saudi, you know, Tibet, North Korea. I mean, those are, you know, Yemen. Yeah. <laughs> but we're in a world, I would just say this, Jacko, I mean, my, I think my students often forget this. I mean, we're in a world where democracies are in the minority. Mm. Most people don't seem to realize it because but democracies are very loud, of course. Yeah, that <laughs> and, is. Uh, that's because we can be loud without getting killed. You know, we see people are so shocked with what happened with the young journalist being plucked from the sky. Two journalists, actually, because I believe the, the young woman was yes. a journalist plucked from the sky over the airspace of Belarus. Yeah, they pretended that the Hamas, quote unquote, sent a bomb threat to Ryanair and, you know, democracies are not in the minority. I mean, in the majority, mm. we are living in a world where authoritarianism human rights derogation is on the rise. I believe we're in that kind of world. So, you know, we're seeing what's happening in Hong Kong, other parts of the world, South Korea, what's happening with the gag law. It's, uh, it's grim, but we're grateful to, uh, to academics like you for uh, uh, recording all this and make and also uh, active being an activist and keeping us um, well helping to keep the governments honest. Yeah, no, that's what we're trying to do. And if you ever see me in a video, know that it's not true. Oh, yes. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and, and on that grim note, we're going to have to end our podcast today. <laughs> so, thank you, Jacko. But once again, thank you, Dr. Sandra Fahi, for joining me on the podcast via Zoom. The title of your two books, again, are Marching Through Suffering. That's the first one. And Dying for Rights, Putting North Korea's Human Rights Abuses on the Record, both published by Columbia University Press and available where all good books are sold. Keep an eye out for her third book to be coming out soon with a tentative working title, of states lies and videotape yeah states lies and video okay uh, ladies and gentlemen if you already have an nk news account and you're a think tank business or academic institution take a look at nk pro uh, inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today and if you have any feedback questions or guest recommendations please send them to podcast at nknews.org our thanks as always to james fretwell and chatter carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. Bye.